The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh, boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Everyone, we are delighted to be our, bring our friend back, Asim Molhatra. Uh, I was early on to Asim. Uh, I think I saw something that made sense to me that he said on Twitter, and I interviewed him at the Dr. Drew podcast, Then Kelly and I interviewed him here. And uh, he has traveled uh, the world, literally, since, since we last spoke with him, and his ideas have evolved. He's, of course, a cardiologist who... After the death of his father, unexpectedly, without any significant coronary disease, he started asking questions. Not allowed to do that anymore. And uh, as a result, he came to some interesting conclusions. He's uh, been warning about the rising influence of pharmaceutical companies, much like our friend RFK Jr. And uh, he's a cardiologist, as I said. He's also a professor of evidence-based medicine. Uh, he is from uh, study public health in Brazil, and he's, of course, uh, an expert on the prevention of heart disease. But he is shunted a lot of his attention over to vaccine therapies and the recent COVID debacle, which we will get into with our friend Kelly Victory as well after this. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. You can spend thousands of dollars trying to look a few years younger, or you can skip all of that hassle and go with what works. Genucel Skincare. Genucel is the secret to better skin. In fact, you might have witnessed the astonishing effects of Genucel during a recent unplanned moment on our show, when just a little Genucel XV restored my skin within minutes right before your eyes. That's how fast these products work. I know I'm a snob about the products I use on my face. Everybody knows it. Every time I go to the dermatologist's office, they're just rows and rows of different creams. And then when I get to the counter, they're overpriced. All kinds of products that you can all find at genucel.com. 
Susan and I love GenuCell so much, we've created our own bundles so you can try our favorite anti-wrinkle treatments, correcting serums, and ultra-retinol creams. Just go to GenuCell.com slash Drew. Use the code Drew for an extra discount and free priority shipping. Again, that is GenuCell.com slash Drew. G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. We are looking forward to today's conversation with Asim Malhatra. As I said, he's a cardiologist. He's an expert in prevention of coronary disease and has studied evidence-based medicine. He has been concerned about the um, much, you know, the the uh, influence of big pharma on uh, what has been going on lately, particularly in this country. He is talking to us today from Australia, I believe. You can follow him on Twitter, uh, dr Asim A S E. A-S-E-E-M, Malhotra, spelled M-A-L-H-O-T-R-A. Please welcome Asim Malhotra. There we are. Hi, Drew. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you as well. Are you in uh, Australia right now? Did I get that right? Yes, that's correct, my friend. I'm in uh, currently in Brisbane, uh, just at the tail end of a pretty whirlwind intense speaking tour across uh, several cities in Australia. Just finished my 10th talk in about 12 days and one big one to come, one huge one to come on Saturday. We'll, we'll tell them about that so they can drop in if they want. Yeah, so uh, I'm speaking in Perth, but we're live streaming a, a kind of health event looking at suppression of speech um, and uh, corruption of medicine, if you like. So the other people that are going to be speaking are Naomi Wolf, uh, Edward Dowd, and um, the father of Julian Assange, John Shipton. So I think it promises to be a very interesting event. Um, certainly in Perth, it's close to sell out. There's about 2,500 people that are coming to that talk, but we want to live stream it so people can really get access to um, avert, well, what I would say is a, is a greater truth um, around what's going on in the world right now and, and, off, and also see what solutions we can offer to fix the problem. And it seems, I mean, Australia was such a... Um... <laughs> let's just say uh, the heavy handed with draconian. lockdowns and the, the draconian, let's use the, what it really was. I, I, and the, and I've spoken to it, it's sort of regionally, it seems to vary, but I've spoken to a number of Australians. They're like, well, they had to do what they had to do. They see, they seem rather shockingly accepting of this as they're learning the reality of the excesses and the sort of capricious draconian nature of them. Are they sort of getting a little angry like they should? Yeah, Drew, it's interesting. So on that first point, I was trying to understand why was Australia particularly draconian with their lockdown measures, with their mandates, etc. And I think there's some historical precedent that needs to be addressed and understood. So Australia actually has a very good historical public health uh, track record. So they were one of the first countries to introduce compulsory seatbelts in cars. They were very good and early in tobacco control. And I think because of those successes, you know, there's a culture here where, um, in general, public have faith in public health um, uh, in Australia and in their government. So I think that played a role. And of course, like everywhere around the world, you've also got huge influence of industry as well behind the scenes. So I think that combination of factors, certainly with Big Pharma, um, led to those measures being implemented. But as you said already, um, you know, I, I feel that certainly since I've been in Australia and certainly the people I've been speaking with, um, there definitely has been a shift, uh, you know, partly due, due to some big mainstream media 
articles uh, that have been disseminated really to most Australians, including a, a class action suit brought by uh, a general practitioner called Dr. Melissa McCann against the medical regulator and the Australian government making claims. And this is, you know, hundreds of people who are vaccine injured are part of that suit. And basically the claims that have been made in this suit is that the regulator and the government were negligent, first and foremost, by saying that the COVID vaccine was safe and effective. And the, info, and the issue has been compounded by the fact that they have failed to acknowledge that there are, you know, huge reports of serious adverse events from Australians to their regulator that are effectively being ignored. So that's really interesting. And then, of course, since I got here as an activist, one of the ways of trying to change the system is to make the injustice visible throughout my sort of 10 year uh, career in activism. You know, almost every medical journal article I've written, I've tried to get into the mainstream news. So I knew the, the power of the media. And we've been quite fortunate in the sense that I was able to break uh, Sky News Australia and, and get my view across that the vaccines should be stopped. Um, the Canberra Weekly, the capital of the country, their local paper actually put a very positive article from my perspective saying, you know, as I said before, and in fact, quite in, in the headline that I said that these vaccines likely should never have been approved for use in a single human in the first place. Uh, and then yesterday, news.com Australia, which is a mainstream you know, website for news in Australia, also had put a headline that the British cardiologist calls for suspension of these COVID mRNA vaccines. So I think there is definitely progress. I think one thing to mention that many people across the world may not know, Drew, is that there was, um, in Australia, if you were a, a healthcare professional and you didn't get vaccinated, you lost your job. And uh, the group of people that have supported my trip, who I've been traveling around with, are called the Australian Medical Professional Society, and they are made up of those healthcare practitioners. And they are really fighting for patients to get the truth out. And, and I'm here to support them to ensure that they get their jobs back. In fact, one of them, the president of the association, is a very eminent cardiologist called, Professor, uh, called Chris Neal. Um, you know, he's supervised 60 PhD students. He's a well-established, published cardiologist in heart failure. Uh, and he's, um, you know, a brilliant man and he stood his ground and he's fighting for medical ethics. And that's what these people are doing. So I'm here to help support them get their jobs back and hopefully also get compensated as well. So I, I'm having trouble understanding how it is possible that essentially every Western government's public health infrastructure is allegedly ignoring reports of serious damage either and i'm wondering how that could be is it, it what do you imagine is going on i over here i hear a lot of dismissal of the um, we have a reporting system that uh, people can you know called the vera system that people go oh, anybody could report whatever but even individual experiences are being sort of sideline nominal. I, I interviewed a friend of mine who was an extremely accomplished writer, director, producer, whose life has been disabled for the last year. I just had him tell his story. Uh, what was that Thursday? Where are we now? That was it yesterday, or when was it? Last week, I think. Um, and you know, people have these stories, and nobody seems to be getting that data. Throughout the world, it seems like. What, what do you imagine is going on? Yeah, it's a great question, Drew. In fact, I, I start my lectures actually addressing this. So I think what we're dealing with here is not a, a battle of, of facts or of intellect or rationality. 
we're, we're fighting a psychological bat battle first. So the first barrier is one of fear. And I think that fear that was created at the beginning of the pandemic is still very present for many people around COVID. And of course, when you're in a state of fear, psychologically it inhibits your ability to engage in critical thinking. So that's one barrier. But I think maybe the bigger one is uh, an issue called willful blindness. So this is when human beings turn a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, avoid conflict, reduce anxiety, and to protect prestige and fragile egos. So this is the real, the real barriers that we have to deal with because Drew, as you know, the evidence and the facts on the harms of these COVID vaccines are, are common and very serious. And they are being dismissed by many people because of that willful blindness. But also, I think we've got to also have some empathy. I'm not saying it's right. You know, it's our job as doctors to stand up and, and to take flack when we need to take flack. But I think for a lot of people, certainly in the medical establishment, governments, regulators, to acknowledge that. And, and listen, I had to make a U-turn myself, as you know. I had to, it took me time to get here. But to acknowledge what they have been part of and what they have unwittingly um, you know, implemented in terms of these vaccine rollouts on the public. Knowing the evidence that we know, it's actually horrific, absolutely horrific. And emotionally, that's quite traumatic, I think, for a lot of people to acknowledge. So it's, it's much easier to bury your head in the sand. Let me give you one example, just for people to understand this level of willful blindness. Um, not so long ago, there was a case in the UK that made BBC News where a, um, a psychologist working in the NHS, a 32-year-old guy, fit and healthy, within a couple of weeks of having the COVID vaccine, he died of a stroke, right? And the, on the death certificate, it was written he died of natural causes. The wife yeah. took it to court, the co and the coroner's court ruled that it was the vaccine. But can you imagine, even in something so clearly obvious, temporarily related, no other obvious factor, and they put natural causes, uh, the medical profession, the doctors looking after this person, so that tells you the degree, Drew, of what we're dealing with here. And, um, and I think the only way to tackle it is really to just keep hammering and being perse you know, persevere with the facts, but also having empathy for people and saying, well, let's try and open people's minds up and eyes up to understand the emotional factors driving this sort of behavior. And, you know, I've seen on Twitter, I won't name people, but some people who I've considered to be great intellectuals, great scientists, and a lot of their responses to this sort of stuff is clearly coming from a place of emotion and even ego, not from rationality. So let's remember, I think as human beings, we are primarily, unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately in some cases, we are primarily emotional rather than being rational with a lot of our decision making in the first instance, for sure. Yes. Yes. Plato, Plato taught us that many a year ago, the, the monkey trying to control the elephant that's why the, our cognition is the a monkey trying to control the elephant. That's is my mic on. Are you hearing me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, I suddenly didn't get my my earpieces turned off or something. But uh, in any event, uh, so you're you're also describing cognitive dissonance, right? It's it's not just willful blindness. It's and biased thinking. It's cognitive dissonance, and some of that. You know, it, one of the you know, I, I'm learning little pieces with everybody I, I interview, and one of the things that has come to light for me, I'm I'm sort of thinking in terms of the the central nervous system effects of COVID and the vaccine. Many of the vaccine sort of researchers and the people responsible for vaccine policy, at least in this country, and I suspect worldwide, are pediatricians. They're pediatricians, and their sense of adult yeah. medicine is totally biased, not, not biased, different. 
than, than mine as an adult practitioner. I'm thinking now of the many several pediatricians I've spoken to that were uh, are apoplectic about vaccines positively. They, they, you have to get the vaccine. And when I question them, they start to get focused on some of the neurological effects of COVID. Like there's been brain shrinkage. My God, there's been brain shrinkage. And people, people have memory problems and they get ringing in the ears. Like, yes. And as an adult practitioner, that happens almost after every severe illness after the age of 50. And guess what happens? It comes back. They get better. Now, maybe over the age of 75 or 80, it's not as resilient, but it comes back. But a pediatrician has no experience with this whatsoever. So what they see is brain damage. Yeah, if a child's brain shrinks, I don't know what that means. I don't have experience with that. That sounds pretty dangerous. But an adult, every time I pull somebody out of an ICU, they have symptoms like that every single time. And almost always they get better. But And I'll let you comment about that because I think, you know, I want to get a little bit down the road of a central nervous system effect, something you and I have never talked about. But go ahead and respond to that if you would. No, Drew, it's a good point. And I think, you know, we have to have a nuanced discussion here because we can accept, you know, I think it's important to simultaneously accept that for some people, COVID has been particularly debilitating. We know certainly early on the pandemic, you know, the elderly vulnerable were more um, likely to get severe disease. Obviously, things have evolved mm. to some degree. Uh, and I've, of course, managed a few people with long COVID um, who didn't get vaccinated and, and, and are taking a long time to really get over very debilitating symptoms. So let, we can acknowledge that. Yep. But there's something else that then asks the question, well, hold on a minute. Okay, there is that going on. But does taking the vaccine actually prevent these complications? And I don't think there's any evidence for that whatsoever. Um, so, no, so there, there actually is. It just, it, it just came out. I'm going to push back. There was a publication, I think the New England Journal, like yesterday, that did show okay. decrease in uh, sequelae. So, so there is now an article suggesting that that has that effect. So it's out there. Okay, sure. Um, well, it would be interesting to look at that data. But of course, the problem we've got yeah. is there is a huge financial interest anyway, Drew, to push that narrative that the vaccine is safe and effective. Mm-hmm. Because that's, we got to this yep. situation because of those financial interests and regulators being funded by pharma to, to, to the degree where um, John Ioannidis, as you know, who I call the Stephen Hawking of medicine, the most published medical scientist in the world pre-pandemic said, you know, um, most published research is misleading, um, where exaggeration of safety and benefits of pharmacological interventions becomes the default through publication. So we have to understand. And of course, what he also says is this, the greater the financial interest in a given field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. So I think with all of these bits of data, we have to look at it, um, you know, with with some healthy skepticism, but I'm here to try and look at the overall totality of evidence. And what's very clear for me is that when you look at the, we go to the root cause of it, in fact, just one bit of data, which is probably enough to, to some degree, Drew, I think, to call for a suspension of these vaccines was a reanalysis of Pfizer and Moderna's own randomized, double-blinded randomized control trials published in the journal Vaccine um, towards the middle of last year by very eminent people. When I say eminent, eminence of integrity, people who don't have financial conflicts of interest. We've got Peter Doshi, associated with the BMJ. We've got Santa Greenland, who's considered probably the top epidemiologist in the world. He wrote the textbook on epidemiology. We've got Robert Kaplan from Stanford, and they found from the very beginning, you were more likely to suffer serious harm 
from the vaccine than you were to be hospitalized with COVID. So for me, it was a no-brainer. This should never have been approved for use in a single human in the first place. And that's very clear. You can follow Dr. Malhotra on Twitter at DRAsim Malhotra. We are going to take a little break. I want to get Kelly Victory in here as quickly as possible because she's got a ton for you as well, Dr. Malhotra. So hang in. We're going to do a little business and then bring Dr. Victory in and we'll continue this conversation. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend. Let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com TWC. That is drdrew.com TWC. Use code Drew at checkout for 10% off today. I recently discovered Paleo Valley. They have a line of products that align perfectly with a paleo dietary regimen. Goodbye to the limited rotation of eggs, burgers, and the standard fare. Hello to a wide variety of extraordinary products that are both healthful and delicious. Paleo Valley offers a spectacular range of options, including 100% grass-fed beef sticks. They're packed with nutrients like omega-3 fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, glutathione, CLA, and bioavailable protein. Plus, keto-friendly, make for a great protein-rich snack on the go. Paleo Valley's tasty beef sticks are not just 100% grass-fed, but also grass-finished, sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. and flavored with real organic spices. They're also fermented, which means they contain natural probiotics that are great for gut health and they taste amazing. Try them out by heading over to drdrew.com slash paleovalley to get 15% off your first order today. Don't miss out on this opportunity to discover a brand that is perfect for your paleo lifestyle. President Trump recently issued a warning from his Mar-a-Lago home, quote, our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard which will be our greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. There are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar, inflation, deficit spending, and our insurmountable national debt. The fact is, there is one asset that has withstood famine, wars, political and economic upheaval, dating back to biblical times, gold. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just visit birchgold.com drew for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. How much more time does the dollar have? Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. I do not give financial advice, and previous performance is no guarantee of future performance. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew to get your free info kit on gold. That is B-I-R-C-H-G-O-L-D dot com slash D-R-E-W. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, 
The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And we welcome Dr. Kelly Victory. But before I let her dig in, Dr. Victory, one second. I, I mentioned an article a few seconds ago I had read about uh, decreased post-COVID uh, complications uh, following vaccine therapy. A simple internet search does not find that article. So I thought I read it in the New England Journal. I may have misread or maybe I don't remember what I was reading. I did find two other articles, a Lancet and a Nature articles, both in their opening description of the their own article, they describe the evidence as poor. So, so, so I'm not quite sure I'll have to find that uh, once once again, see if that article actually really existed or if I dreamed it or something. Dr. Victor, I give you Dr. Mohatra. <laughs> I assume, thank you. Great to have you back. And thank you for putting up with whatever the time difference is. I think you're on the other side of the planet uh, from us right now. So I don't even know what the date is if you're before us or, be, or behind us, but uh, uh, in any event, uh, welcome. I think it's 8th, 8th of June here. Yeah, 8th of June here. I think it's okay. kind of 8.30 okay. in the morning. So uh, it's not too bad. I'm a morning person, so it's all good. <laughs> well, terrific. Well, thank thank you for being. Um, I want to pick up sort of where you left off, and then uh, it, let's talk about, in my estimation, none of this could have happened. What we've experienced in the last three and a half years, none of it could have happened without the highly orchestrated collusion between big pharma, the mainstream media, social media, and our big agencies, our federal agencies, for us, the CDC and the FDA. It was an orchestrated collusion in my mind, uh, and they clearly shut down uh, people like you and me and, and others uh, I was there er very early on um, is saying, you know, raising the alarm flags about uh, the vaccine, certainly, and also being very, very critical of other portions of the pandemic response. But let's talk a little bit about that. You're about to do this, what sounds like a fascinating uh, conference um, with some other uh, real truth warriors, Naomi Wolf and Ed Dowd, neither of whom incidentally come from a scientific background. Uh, but they both have come to the uh, undeniable conclusion that these vaccines are absolutely disastrous. Talk a little bit about where you see how this might have played out differently or how we don't allow this to happen again by disarticulating this relationship, this very cozy relationship between big pharma and the other players. Yeah, it's a great question, Kelly. So in fact, uh, you know, I think some uh, a paper I urge everybody to read, which you can Google search, it's open access, um, you know, even for the layperson, it, they can understand it, doctors will find it fascinating. It's called How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess. And the lead author is John Ioannidis, who I call the Stephen Hawking-like figure of medicine. And, uh, you know, what it highlights, again, is how, th this was published in 2017, you know, pre-pandemic, even at that stage, he highlights that in the United States, 20 to 50% of all healthcare activity, and you spend more than $4 trillion on healthcare, brings no benefit to the patient. I mean, that's an extraordinary figure, and he explains why. And he says, most doctors are unaware of the poor quality research that drives overuse of medications, underuse of simpler, safer options, including lifestyle interventions, missed opportunities for right care, giving the right patient the right treatment at the right time, huge waste, and avoidable adverse events. And he says that, you know, and, and the roots of this is that most 
if not most, uh, if not much published clinical research is unreliable, not useful to decision makers or patients. Right. But the issue, Kelly, is this, I think, which you've raised. Most healthcare practitioners are not aware of this problem. They are not aware of these system right. failures. Then they lack the critical appraisal skills to understand the reliability of, of clinical evidence. And then finally, patients lack accurate information when it comes to making decisions about their health from their doctors. So he really highlights it in, in, a, in, a, in a very analytical way. But coming back to what you said earlier, the problem we've got is that over time, I mean, this has been getting worse, I think, probably since the 1980s. And well-intentioned, you know, this is the economic system at the heart of the problem. Well-intentioned neoliberal economic policies that were promulgated by the likes of Ronald Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in the UK meant that over time since the 80s that these big multinational corporations and we can use the example of big pharma here gained more and more both visible and invisible unchecked power so for example mm -hmm. if you look at academic institutions in the us and the uk and many parts of the world most of their funding now for clinical research doesn't isn't publicly or government funded it comes from pharma right, right. the pharmaceutical industry their primary motives to make profit for shareholders they don't have a legal obligation to give the best treatment right. But the real scandals are regulators fail to prevent misconduct by industries and by industry and doctors, academic institutions and medical journals that have a responsibility to scientific integrity collude with industry for financial gain. And I've actually come up with a term that even Richard Horton referenced in The Lancet when he came to one of my lectures uh, in London a few months ago called the psychopathic determinants of health. And I, and I, make, I made that sort of, um, I came up with that that term based upon the fact that Robert Hare, forensic psychologist behind the original DSM criteria for psychopathy, he actually in the book, The Corporation, which, you, which people should read in the documentary uh, done by law professor Joel Bacan in the States, says that quite often, not always, as legal entities, multinational corporations in their pursuit for profit fulfill the criteria for psychopathy. So callous unconcern for the safety of others, oh. deceitfulness, repeated lying and conning others for profit and incapacity to experience guilt. So I think that is actually at the root of many of the problems we're facing right now, Kelly, in terms of understanding the culture that we've got into, even where, you know, we've got, you know, silencing of whistleblowers. We've got a culture where, you know, um, Richard Smith, a former of the BMJ in 2016, discusses the fact that he was at a, a, an academic conference where he, made a, he gave a lecture to many of Britain's top academics and he asked the audience how many of them were aware of a colleague that had fabricated data or committed right. research misconduct in their department. A third of them put their hand up, Kelly. Third, right. And then he asked them how no, many reported I, yeah. it and they all put their hand down. Right. So, so here's the question. Exactly. And I am aware of that. So here, where does that leave us? Here we are, three physicians uh, on this show right now discussing. I always prided myself in being very intellectually curious. I was not lazy. I went to what I perceived to be the oil. I went to the journal. I went to the Lancet. I read the study. I didn't just read the abstract. I thought all this time, three decades I've been doing this. And I believed, it, and this pandemic has for me been really a, an eye opener that I realized exactly what you are saying, that the large majority of the, of the, the studies of the quote literature 
are are falsified, are faulty. They are they are bought by big pharma. And here, even though we have discussed it on this show over and over again, including uh, quite recently with Bobby Kennedy, what did you know, Drew? And this is not a dig at Drew. It's how we all default. You immediately say, "Oh wait, I just read an article in the Lancet," and you you still want to give them credence because without that, where does that leave? physicians? Where does that leave scientists? The very underpinnings for me, at least, uh, I am starting to question many of the foundational constructs of what I've done in medicine. I don't know what to believe with regard to my use of, of statins, of opiates, of, of antibiotics, of, of blood pressure medications, of lots of things now, given that I can no longer trust the science. Yeah, I mean, on that point, um, you know, Richard Horton in 2015 in an editorial wrote in relation to a, a meeting that he had attended organized by the Wellcome Trust in the UK was he, he said some of the top academic researchers in the world, he said possibly half, this is the editor of the Lancet, possibly half of the medical published literature may simply be untrue. And he, but he concluded, and this is where I think we need to find solutions here, Kelly. He said science had taken a turn towards darkness but who is going to take the first step to clean up the system? So once we identify these issues in the system, that basically we've got too many people with conflicts of interest making decisions over health policy, determining mm -hmm. clinical guidelines. So we need to devolve ourselves from those conflicts of interest so that we can be more confident in the information that we receive as doctors and clinicians is closer to the truth. You know, one could argue philosophically there's never there's no absolute truth. What we want is greater truths and we want to improve our patient outcomes. And of course, you can take a step back and just look at what's going on in terms of the health of the world. In the US, I think you've lost two years right. of your life expectancy in the last few years. Yeah. In the UK, yeah. we've, we've had a stalling of life expectancy and more people are living with chronic disease. So if we look at the overall picture, I think people are more aware that something isn't right because if we were doing everything right, according to ethical evidence-based medical practice, then why are our patients, why is the population getting sicker? I mean, that's a good starting point. Yes. Hey, okay, I have, I have so a, a, a point here real quick, guys. But Kelly, before you get launch into that, just a quick thing, which is, I don't know, uh, Kelly, if you heard RFK Jr.'s Twitter spaces with Elon Musk, but somebody asked him how it was that the left had suddenly... The, the the pharmaceutical industry had suddenly become the darling of the left, which which I we you and I have been wondering about for quite some time. Is like, how did this right. happen? These right. they used to hate pharmaceutical, and, and he he went through the whole history. It's very interesting listening to RFK because he's he's been around all this, and he went through the history and he said. Ultimately, of course, there was the issue with the funding, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Reagan reducing the funding and then the and then uh, pharmaceutical filling in with the money to to do research. But he said there was a bigger issue, which was that the the lobbying infrastructure in Washington of big pharma is five times any other industry in the world. And they couldn't pass Obamacare without their participation. And he described a what he called as a golden handshake between pharma and the pharmaceutical industry that allowed the pharmaceutical to now not have to negotiate drug prices for Medicare and Medi-Cal. They can just ask whatever price they want for the support of Obamacare. And that was sort of the moment that they became a participant in the policies and politics of, of the other side. And so that's kind of interesting. Um, 
Gosh, there was oh, so he and he also said, if you recall when he talked to us, was one of the ways he was going to solve this editorial problem that you guys are digging into was he was going to call in all the major editorial directors of all the major journals and tell them he was going to prosecute them under a RICO law if they did not solve this problem. Right, and and I think that that's I think that that's a um, a unique novel way of going about it. I think if anyone could do it, Bobby Kennedy could. I think what you're getting into is really some of the un unbelievable corruption of group purchasing organizations and pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs and GPOs. What we call in this country the quote middlemen that have allowed if, if this if they did in any other industry what's done in pharmaceuticals it. it would go under the name racketeering. It would be illegal, um, but it right. does happen. And big right. pharma owns uh, not only the mainstream media and and social media, but they own uh, many of our agencies. And it's a real problem. There's tremendous, tremendous conflict of interest there, and we need yeah. to sort it out. Yeah. Because, yeah. Go ahead. Please yeah, go ahead. Okay. Dr. I, I, these, the, the two points that have been raised both by Drew and yourself are interesting. So, in relation to what you just said about the you know, the power of pharmaceutical industries and the control they have. I think I'm, I'm somebody that believes in real democracy and, and people need to be given all the information to make decisions. What's happened is they have, by stealth, kind of behind the scenes, they have increasingly got this sort of level of power and control. So it, I was in Australia on TV, I've mentioned this before, and the um, on Sky News Australia a, a week and a half ago, and the presenter, Rowan Dean was shocked to the extent where he says, I don't know whether this is true, Dr. Marshall. When I told them, and this was published in the BMJ, that 96% of the funding of the Australian regulator, the TGA, comes from pharma. He didn't believe that, but that's factually correct. 65% of the funding of the FDA comes from pharma. 86% of the funding of the regulator in the UK comes from pharma. Now, if you ask most people, right, I think everybody, I've not met a single person, I speak to patients and doctors, they think that's unacceptable. So for me, that tells us that really what's happened is we have and on a very basic level, we can talk about the science of it being, unethical, it being unethical in a way because of the conflicts of interest, but from a de democratic point of view, it is undemocratic. So we've got undemocratic laws right. that perpetuate this problem. And therefore the solution is through real democracy. The other issue yes. what Drew raised is very interesting. I was being, I've been battling this as well about this left-right divide. Um, you know, just a declaration here, I don't belong to any political party, but my allegiances traditionally in the UK have always been on the left. You know, part of it was because my father was, you know, a card carrying Labour supporter. He was the uh, Labour Party, which is the equivalent of the Democrats in the US, National Doctor of the Year. That's what he got. So he was a passionate campaigner for the NHS. So my allegiances have always been on the left. And I've been very much aware that the left have been the ones traditionally that have been the biggest, um, you know, uh, advocates calling out big corporations and their manipulations and excesses. So why? It's so strange here. I found myself in a position the last couple of years where the, the, the only people that were calling out or agreeing with me or listening to me and giving me a platform to talk about what happened with the vaccine were people on the right. So I tried to think about what, what's happened here. And there's something else to sort of, uh, I think, uh, consider in this debate. Ideologically, the left in general think that the community is more important than the individual. And the right put individual ahead of the community individual responsibility. What's happened here, the narrative has been captured on the left thinking incorrectly that because vaccines are so good and they're something that, you know, um, that we all take traditionally and that we are doing something for 
the common good, even this narrative that if you take the vaccine, it isn't necessary to protect yourself, but you're going to protect your, you know, your elderly parents or your grandparents from getting sick. That, that narrative was captured very effectively so that the left felt this was something really important for, as, as, a, as a, a social issue, right, that they need to get behind. Whereas the right, interestingly, I thought they've always been very pro-corporate, pro-big business. But I think what usurped many people on the right was this, um, the mandates is that suddenly we've taken out autonomy and individual responsibility and we're saying that we need to do something. So it's very interesting to see how that has, has worked out psychologically. But of course, at the root of all the problems is, um, you know, in my view, I think we've got psychopathic entities that are really calling the shots and, uh, and, and are deceiving both the left and the right on this issue. Well, let, let me delve a little bit more into exactly what you're talking about here, Dr. Malhotra. I would say, you know, most people know that the, the fundamental concept of, of medicine uh, is first do no harm. Uh, followed closely by the supporting tenants, uh, the importance of the risk-benefit calculation, and number two, informed consent. Let's talk about how those three things, first do no harm, the risk-benefit analysis, and informed consent, how did we somehow, or you know, not we, not the three of us, but the rest of medicine, the rest of the world decide to flush the very basis, the absolute foundation of medicine for the past three and a half years, particularly with these vaccines. Yeah, so I, I would bring it back to um, the basics of what does it mean? What does evidence-based medicine mean, right? So there's a, a very uh, elegant analytical framework that we should be using for practicing and teaching medicine, which was published first in the BMJ in 1996 by David Sackett, who's a lead author, called the Evidence-Based Medicine Triad. So I use this framework when I think about every patient that I meet. And, and basically what it, it you know, encompasses is that our duty, our, our, our responsibility as doctors is to improve patient outcomes. So that means managing risks, treating illness, relieving suffering. But to do that effectively, we use our clinical experience, our expertise, our knowledge, our clinical intuition over years. The best available evidence is, so the first component is your individual clinical experience. The second component is using the best available evidence, right, on any intervention, whether it's drug treatment, whether it's a surgery, whether it's organizing a test, it's even a lifestyle intervention. Mm -hmm. But last but not least, what David Sackett said was most important, Kelly, was taking into consideration individual patient preferences and values through informed consent, through exactly what you said, transparent communication of risks and benefits. So as when I give my lectures, when I teach people, I say, well, you know, if you just take a step back, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there's, if there's anything wrong with any of these three components or all of these three components, at best, you're going to get suboptimal outcomes and at worst, you're going to do harm. And even pre-pandemic, what's happened is the best available evidence has been, you know, biased and corrupted by these, you know, commercial interests. So the evidence-based medicine, unfortunately, has now be has, has become an illusion and has been hijacked by these, uh, by these entities. So what's happening, I think, um, Kelly, is that many doctors actually probably believe they're adhering to the principles of evidence-based medicine because, as you said earlier, like we were in this position before, they have taken articles published in medical journals as being gospel mm -hmm. truth, like biblical right. truth. Exactly. They're not questioning it. And that's the yes. issue.
Yes, I, I, I agree. I agree. So here you are, you sit in Australia today. You know, you talked with Drew earlier on about the draconian um, approach that the Australians, more than probably anywhere else in the world, uh, maybe other than the Chinese, took early on. Yet, interestingly, they have done, uh, you know, about a 180 with regard to the vaccines, at least as they pertain to children, for example. Uh, the UK and Australia both did an about face where here in the United States, we're still, you know, safe and effective, safe and effective, roll up your sleeve. What do you, th what happened What in Australia and in the UK do you think that caused them to see these things um, perhaps uh, more conservatively than we are here in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question, Kelly. I wonder whether, you know, there were, when you look at the United States, I think around the world, I think if you look at the corporate world, I think the biggest influence of the big corporations is in the US. And that means they have greater power to suppress freedom of information. Um, I don't, you know, other than uh, maybe through some outlets on the right, through Fox, I think a lot of the, the so-called mainstream media has been captured more in the US. I think that may be a role that has played here because we've managed to somehow get a little bit more of this information out into the mainstream news in the UK and, the, and, and Australia around the potential harms of these vaccines. That's my observation. I wonder whether that's why um, the response in the in Australia and UK has been maybe a little bit ahead of the curve okay. compared to the US. Gotcha. You know, we Can talk I, um... a lot about sense. Go ahead, Drew. I was going to ask, I, 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 I'm going to let you ask that question, but I, at some point I do want to get some thoughts from both you guys. It, 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 I started ruminating uh, uh, you know, when I was listening to your guys talk about what you're imagining. <laughs> How do I frame this? How do you feel about the World Health Organization and their One Health Initiative and their new, quote, treaties and, and these uh, digital health, <laughs> you know, initiatives that we're all going to have to have? And, you know, we're going to have to show our papers in order to move across borders. Uh, I, I, go ahead and Kelly, ask your question and finish that thought. And maybe we can kind of get, dabble in this area because I imagine you both have some very strong feelings about this. Sure. Let me just, I, I just, what, where I was going to go just briefly, at least, is that, you know, we, we talk a lot about censorship. Uh, and I certainly have been egregiously censored, kicked off Twitter for over a year, banned from YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, and that is one love insult. And I think it's wrong. And I think it's dangerous. It doesn't hold a candle, however, to the weaponization of our medical boards that we have seen. When you start actually threatening a physician's livelihood, threatening a physician's license, and that has happened across this country. What has it been like in the UK or in Australia with regard to, actually, I mean, this is, this is a la the, you know, cultural revolution stuff. You know, this is stuff that, you know, that the Chinese and the North Koreans were famous for. Uh, trying to to actually destroy people or assassinate them, either in reality or, or ruin their careers. What has it been like in the UK and Australia with regard to weaponization of the medical complex? Yeah, I mean, this is corporate medical tyranny, isn't it, Kelly? Um, Australia, yeah. I think, has been the worst that I've seen because I've, what happened, what was interesting in Australia was it wasn't just that if you were a healthcare worker and didn't get vaccinated, you lost your job. 
they threatened the the medical boards in Australia threatened this is very interesting they threatened any doctor that spoke out in any forum right even in giving a lecture whether it was on social media um if they questioned the narrative at all even questioned it slightly they were subject to a new emergency clause that was brought in that they could face immediate even if they were fully vaxxed by the way they could face immediate suspension of their medical license pending an investigation not an investigation to potentially suspend it was almost guilty until proven innocent and that is extraordinary that stopped a lot of doctors speaking out now when I, one of the reasons i came here to australia seeing what was going on i knew because i'm coming from the uk they can't touch me you know they can do whatever they you know they can smear me whatever else and i could get in the mainstream media and i could say what a lot of those doctors wanted to say but couldn't so that was one of the reasons i came here in the uk which is interesting um we haven't had that i mean it's, there has been some censorship there's been people who are fearful of losing their medical license before i published my paper in the journal of insulin resistance a couple of friends of mine said to me seem if you publish this just so you know you're likely to get you lose your medical license but i thought to myself you know the truth is more important i can't sleep at night knowing what i know and i said i'm willing to take that risk and as a result so far kelly um the general medical council have not taken action against me despite the fact that there have been numerous complaints by doctors i've seen it through yeah. social media i've seen responses from the general medical council saying that they don't want to interfere with freedom of speech they don't agree with me but they don't think i've done anything so far that would question my fitness to practice and the situation has got, i mean this is i don't know if you're aware of this story it just came out in the medical press in the uk a few days ago this is extraordinary because the so imagine this our medical regulator the gmc has not taken so far any action against me to investigate me a group of anonymous doctors in the national health service in the uk are suing are taking action against the general medical council for not taking action against me right you really saw that this up for, for spreading no. for spreading covid vaccine disinformation these yeah. are the allegations me being a conspiracy theorist which is clearly a known goal because i've been very clear on my advocacy on this is no conspiracy here these are system failures so you know let's see what happens but you know i'm saying i'm happy to for them to bring it on i mean if if it means i have to be you know uh that i have to defend myself in this way um it's only going to get more attention we can get all the evidence out there and ultimately the truth will win so i'm ready to you know accept those consequences if we have to go down that route no i i have personally defended myself against seven formal complaints uh, to the medical board from uh, multiple different states where i hold licenses i have done so successfully each time but it is exhausting uh, it's very time consuming and emotionally uh, debilitating. We have people like uh, Peter McCullough, who's been threatened with uh, removal of his board certification. Uh, Dr. Merrill Nass was remanded to psychiatric evaluation in this country for prescribing hydroxychloroquine. I mean, this is a la, as I said, there's very little daylight between the United States and North Korea when you start uh, remanding people to psychiatric uh, facilities for for their behavior. And again, it's generally in this country largely anonymous and has nothing to do with the way you treat patients. It always has to do with what you've said um, publicly. And uh, it, it's it's interesting that you fled to, or not fled to, but went to Australia where you could speak openly. We just, we had a conversation with Pierre Corey 
the other day, he is currently practicing on an American Indian reservation where he is immune from their mandates because the, the American Indians in this country have sovereign immunity on their reservation land, on their sacred land, and they don't have to play by the rules that the federal government sets up. So uh, people are finding lots of workarounds. I've always said people did yeah. not end up being physicians because they couldn't think of anything better to do and because they aren't smart enough to fight their way out of a paper bag. So uh, good good for you. Yeah, for Kevin, that, a place what, 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 yeah, what many of these people are doing, including yourself, I know it's tough, but you know, I was reminded um, often by the words of Martin Luther King, if you can't drive, you run. If you can't run, you walk. If you can't walk, you crawl, but keep moving forward. And we have to keep moving forward. We are here to fight for patients, for scientific integrity. It's tough. You know, there are slings and arrows coming our way. But ultimately, I believe honestly in, in, I have faith in humanity, I have faith in the truth. And I think there is light at the end of the tunnel, but we have to lead people through this. And also it means, you know, if, if our enemies go low, we go high. We take the moral high ground. We have to have empathy for many of these yes. clinicians who are sending, even for me, you know, it, we get upset and angry, but I genuinely believe that, that those people think actually that they're doing the right thing. And they're probably coming from a place of fear. And I think if we treat yeah. them with empathy and we take the higher moral ground, I think that this will all dissipate with time. Mm. Well, right. let's move let's, in these few minutes to, to Drew's question. I know I've got some thoughts on this uh, WHO treaty, but I'd be very interested in hearing um, your, your take on this. You're so thoughtful about everything that uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually I'm glad you raised this WHO thing. So. I obviously, I, as doctors, I want to trust the WHO, right? I think over the years, WHO have done great things, but the problem again is this, is this capture by industry. So there's a couple of key facts here. One is the former director general of the WHO several months ago, Margaret Chan, and I think this was a cry for help in an interview said, 70% of the funding of the World Health Organization comes with strings attached. We, know, we now know the second largest funder the World Health Organization is, the, is Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, that's a problem, you know, because he has huge conflicts of interest. He's, the, the foundation is heavily invested stocks in McDonald's, Coca-Cola, and the pharmaceutical industry. The two big issues in public health in the Western world are the influences of the food industry and how diet-related disease is being fueled a lot by their manipulations, and also by pharmaceutical industry. So that's Bill Gates. He made half a billion dollars on investments in the COVID vaccines. This man should not be having any influence in the World Health Organization. So what do we conclude from that, um, Kelly Drew? In my view, and I've been public about this, I said that right now, as long as the WHO is also captured by these commercial interests, they cannot be trusted. No government, no member of the public, no doctor around the world should trust the WHO while they continue to be captured by industry funding. I think that's very, very clear. And we have to keep hammering that message again, again, and again. I think also, to be honest, I think during, we look back during the handling of the pandemic, I think they also showed incompetence, right? Because we knew from the very beginning, the World Health Organization already had a plan that if something like this, this sort of virus was gonna be unleashed on the world, lockdowns were not gonna work. And they changed their view purely because of China. China convinced the world that lockdowns were the way forward, that they contained the virus in Wuhan. We knew it spread throughout China. And again, you know, we've seen the devastating consequences now of this. So I don't think the World Health Organization have a good track record right in the last few years in terms of 
uh, you know, public health and world health, not at all. And therefore, I don't think they can be trusted. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, I have long said that the WHO, in my estimation, is the is the long arm of the Chinese Communist Party. Dr. Tedros, um, who is not actually a medical doctor, um, has a, a somewhat sordid past, and I don't think he has the best interests necessarily certainly the sovereignty of this country uh, at heart when when he's making decisions on behalf of the WHO. Uh, furthermore, as I said, as you said, I think they showed a great deal of incompetence. Um, I guess the broader question for me is, is there such a thing as global public health? Uh, given the things that you and I have talked about, that public, that the the way that we treat people has to take into account their individual uh, their their tolerance for risk their tolerance for um, for individual sovereignty that for their civil liberties is there such a thing in your mind as global public health? Yeah, uh, Kelly, I think we have to use both. So I always come back to something called that when I think about population health as as doctors clinicians we want to improve our individual patient outcomes but we're all interconnected. And if population health deteriorates, then it's gonna come back and bite us, right? Because we all rely on each other for different things and healthcare systems are gonna be under, under, under pressure. And, uh, you know, and we don't live in cocoons. You know, we can't, we, I don't think personally, maybe people may have a different view, but I don't think we can individually lead productive lives if the world around us is burning. So that means I think there is a responsibility we have towards the community. But also, um, if you look at the CDC's health impact pyramid, uh, and again, this is, I think, well-established. I don't think many people would disagree with this. The, the, the environment, so if you look at individual, you know, um, uh, patient contact or education, for example, when you look at the impact on population health, it's at the top of the pyramid, has the least impact on population health. The biggest impact comes from what we call socioeconomic factors. I would call it the biopsychosocial mm -hmm. determinants of health, but also the environment, right? The environment also has a, probably the biggest impact on our health. And we look historically, for example, at you know, tobacco control, that wasn't one, the, the, the curbing in, in smoking cigarettes, which was 50% of the American US population was smokers, adult smokers in 1970, now it's less than 20%. That big decline, which was a really important, um, had a really important role to play in public health, didn't happen from education alone. Education played a very small role. The single biggest factor was actually taxation of cigarettes, public smoking bans. So that's where you need government, of course, and, you know, and also government there are there to, you know, um, provide laws. I mean, we have to I think we have to have this debate in, you know, in, in a probably more nuanced way. Uh, what well, I, I agree. Right. I agree. But I, I would alert both of you. I please watch the conversation I had with uh, Michelle Bachman yesterday uh, in yeah. this new treaty civil liberties and rights are relinquished as well as individual right. national sovereignties are relinquished to the authority of the World right. Health Organization. And in relinquishing, two things are being put in place. One is a global digital health monitoring system that we will all be subjected to in order to move about. And number two, they are pushing something called One Health, which holds that animals have equivalent health rights to humans and their major initiative is going to be climate change as the ultimate public health problem so when all that kicks in please guys be aware there's a tsunami coming we have to push back on this absolutely 
Go to exitthewho.com. Yeah, and, and I guess that's really quote, what if I you don't mind. I, I, I love my quotes. So if you don't mind, Drew, you just, you just reminded me of another great quote from Martin Luther King. It is a moral obligation of every citizen to disobey unjust laws. And this is what's happening. So we have to, do, we, we cannot comply with this. Amen. I agree. And that's really what I meant when I said, is there such a thing as global health is that if you have to abdicate the sovereignty of your own nation uh, in order to do and this, your civil I rights. Just, I that yeah i because i think that we have a different we are ex, have a different expectation here in this country or in the uk or in australia than they might have in other countries and i don't see this as being something that we can tolerate tolerate here and i agree with you civil disobedience is where uh is where we need to go with this so um i know we're looking down the clock i i asked you to stay with us for an hour and you've graciously done so dr mahadra Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Any last uh, thoughts? Anything? I, I wish I could come to your uh, upcoming conference with, uh, with Naomi and Ed. That sounds sounds well, really I'll send you the link because I think I think it's at a, a reasonable time for live streaming on Saturday, but it's going to be available for 30 days so people can watch it back. And I'll, I'll, oh, I'll make sure I send you the link right. and hopefully we'll put it up there. I think one last thought is I think let's have hope. I think there's a lot of good leadership around the world. I am encouraged by uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. I think, although it's 18 months away, I think from your elections, I think he started very well. I think the mainstream media attacking him is only gonna fuel his support. I mean, let's yes. learn from what happened with Trump. I think a lot of people couldn't believe when Trump got in, despite all of the mainstream media attacking him. I think Robert Kennedy Jr. comes from a place of integrity and ethics. He has a great family. I agree. Um, you know, I think he's a chip off the old block. I think his father was a remarkable man. And I think he's somebody genuinely, if he gets into power, I think he can be a huge, uh, play a huge role in solving many of these problems and issues. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. Drew? Yes, thank you guys. Uh, I see him always go, uh, is, I guess it's morning there tomorrow for you. So have a good day. I think that's right. Or, or is it nighttime? Yes. <laughs> no, it's morning. Right? It's morning but on the eighth. It's morning. Morning, yeah, morning tomorrow. To and uh, <laughs> yeah, good. And if you're ever out uh, in California, please let us know. We'd love to uh, hook up with you somewhere. Well, and well on that, out, maybe uh, we'll talk about it again. I'm going to come over to the States in August because I'm making a, a documentary film called First Do No Farm and uh, really to highlight oh, all of these structural issues and give solutions. So, yeah, we're crowdfunding for that at the moment. People can look at that. It's called nofarmfilm.com is a website. And we're going to be interviewing some good names. John Abramson from Harvard, who's done more than anybody in terms of drug industry litigation. Jay Bhattacharya, Robert Kennedy Jr. So there's, um, we're going to make a really strong documentary film. And we're going to be filming the summer a lot of the time in California. So hopefully I'll get to meet you, Drew. All right. Fantastic. We 100%. And Kelly, it. thank you as always. Uh, I'll say goodbye to Dr. Mahantra. And Kelly, you and I have uh, coming up next week. Is it, uh, shoot, I'm blanking on who's coming up. You didn't take any calls yeah. today? Uh, I can if you wish, but I'm going to tell you who's coming up in one second. There it is. Jay, uh, there we go. Uh, Joel Adipo. Yeah. Joel Adipo next week. And then Tom Renson a couple weeks after that. Uh, Mark Morano. And uh, Tom Renson is going to tell us about the the um, espionage activity that is represented in the EcoHealth Alliance. Yeah. Hopefully he'll tip his hat on that a little bit. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, Kelly, do you have a minute to take some calls? Are so you... I got an email today about the exitthewho.com yeah. link, and I clicked on it, and I went and signed the petition, even though it said until May, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I would just suggest everybody who's listening to go ahead and sign the petition, share with your friends, and then uh, contact your your congressman. They give you like all your people and where to contact them on that website. So Excellent. I think that's like the best thing we can do at this point. Uh, Kelly, yeah, you want agree. to uh, take a couple calls? Take five, five or ten minutes. Sure. Take a couple calls. Sure. You up for that? Sure. All right. Yep. This is uh, John, uh, who I believe I've had here before. Uh, John, come on up. I think John is uh, from Massachusetts. If it's who I think it is, give him a second to set up here. Hello. Can hey, John, you hear me? what's up? Hey, hey I gotcha. We can. Hey, thanks for taking my call again. It's been a number of months since you we bet. spoke. We now have uh, we now have Minnesota data. We got a good crew working on it. Um, you know that I've had the uh, five hundred thousand Massachusetts test certificates analyzed them. Uh, going along what you said about strokes and neurological, all the G codes mm -hmm. are way up. Uh, Ninety nine thirty five, a um, bunch of others. I won't get too much into the stuff your audience doesn't know the numbers of, but the strokes that I've correlated, it'll be in my book. It's coming out within 30 days. I won't try to plug it right here um, unless you want me to, <laughs> but it'll have a lot I of do. data. Go ahead. It. Go ahead. Why, why don't I want to get more information out? If people want to read about or see what you're, what you're getting into by all means, and I'd love to talk to you more about it here for that matter, but go ahead. Tell us what it is. Okay, great. Um, well, I write under the name Coquin de Chien, which means, uh, naughty dog or bad dog in French because I have a little black dog and he's cute. So the it just so happens serendipitously that Cocaine de Chien carries the initials CDC. So the name of my book is The Real CDC. And what I do is provide information that the CDC has not provided. It's unbundled. Um, when I say unbundled, I mean I don't have acute and chronic renal failure together with a Simpsons paradox that cancels the signals. I give you them individually and I show you that acute renal failure is up 100%, not only in Massachusetts, but the next book, The Real CDC Does Minnesota, will also show you that it's up uh, over 100% in Minnesota as well. That's basically murder. John, do me a favor and explain, explain, John, explain to people how you got into this and why why you know what you're doing. So, see, I don't think Kelly's heard your story yet and what, what happened to you in Massachusetts. Because let me just say, before you go on, uh, Kelly, I was complaining at one point about how capricious our 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 uh, our um, death certificates are how we fill them out we're not trained to do it they right. won't accept anything right. except the heart stop that's the only <laughs> thing they'll accept or else you're obliged to send it to the coroner i mean it's just so ridiculous and john called in i think on the heels of that and had a story so go ahead john uh yeah so uh i don't know how far i want to go back i'll just say i'm an engineer so you know i like numbers and um, I lost my son in 2018, and I was depressed sitting on the couch, um, didn't work for years. COVID hit, and uh, I just wanted to prove the truth. And so I, I got into the data and found out almost immediately that um, CDC had changed some historical data in order to fit the COVID mm -hmm. narrative. And that kind of sent me into a tizzy. And I knew that the, the only way to get the truth is to get record-level source data. And that's my terminology for it. Um, if you don't get record-level source data, you're getting de-identified data that's bundled, and they can fool every doctor and researcher in the world by putting uh, different data sets together. 
And that's basically mm-hmm. what they've been doing to everybody. So I've got record level source data. What do I do with it? I didn't know what to do with it. I'm not a doctor. So I started analyzing uh, individual codes. And I found that 2020 was a year of excess respiratory deaths. And all of a sudden, it switches over in 2021 when they started vaccinating. Uh, coincidentally, everything switched over to more excess in uh, the D codes, which is blood, and the I codes, which is circulatory. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, I call it the symptom spectrum profile of, of, uh, of deaths within a society. You can, you can profile and create, I'm an engineer, right? So electrical engineers, I create waveforms. And from the waveforms, I can um, extract signals. When you extract, like, what's normal for the past uh, five years from 2015 to 2019, subtract that going forward, and what's left over is the signal. Well, the signal changed from respiratory to circulatory. Like I said, it also changed and dropped 16 years in average age, which is, which is just horrendous because uh, you're talking about 16 times the life years lost. Um, yeah, so that's that's what I've been doing, and um, I got Massachusetts and a very uh, really cool woman in in Minnesota uh, that I now consider a friend. Wants to remain anonymous. We now have four hundred thousand death certificates from Minnesota. The same um, signals are occurring from acute renal failure, but not the same from other things like cardiac arrest, cardiac arrhythmia, post-hemorrhagic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and so forth. It's different. Uh, the, mm. the timing of entry in in the in the it's a seasonal respiratory virus and and Dr. Drew, you're right. You know, um, COVID does cause the same blood blood forming organ issues, clotting, bleeding, uh, things like that, strokes. It does, it does, but it it's got to be close to two orders of magnitude greater from the vaccine. They jump off the charts in 21 and 22, and it's in younger people. So. Too much to talk about on this call right now, but we could talk for a while. Do, I did do, want to talk. John, to do, I, do I have your do I have your contact info? Um, yeah, I mean, I can email again. It's contact at Dr. Drew or something like that. I got an email. Yeah. I have exchanged email. I see his Hang on. Twitter, John. You have him on Twitter, okay. well, but, but get, 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 get what you can. I, I want to hear Kelly. Get what you can. I want to hear Kelly try to pronounce my name again. <laughs> <laughs> you, you want to that hear me? That was Susan. <laughs> that was Susan. That <laughs> Trying to Kelly. pronounce his last name. Yeah. Oh, Susan. Uh, yes, yeah. in the end. Oh. It's both. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm sure it's uh, left over from, uh, or somehow uh, the the school is also a bastardization of your name. So it's probably Bowden. That's what my. my no, it says senior at the end. And I was trying to pronounce that. But listen. Yeah, I, John, I want you to actually put together like a presentation, like a way of presenting the data. I want to go over it with you, and I want to bring you back on and do it for the program, okay? Yeah, I've, I've got, if you type my first and last name into Rumble, 30 videos will come up. I've done podcasts all over. A million people have seen what I've done. I've presented to over a thousand doctors, lawyers, and researchers. So I'm ready yeah. to go whenever you want. All right, we got to kind of keep it on a certain level to make sure people can digest it and stuff for purposes of something like this. But I definitely want to bring you in and do that. How so. dare you, Drew? No, no, no. I, I mean, Rumble is offended. No, 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 no offense. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Just, I, I, I understand. I don't. I understand what you're saying. I, I get it. Uh, my, my I don't understand half the stuff Kelly says. So, 
Right. And and uh, and, and Kelly has Kelly is very skilled at this. She knows right where to take it. <laughs> so I want to make sure I want to make sure we get no, it. No, do you, the nerdier the better. Uh, thanks, Brings John. ratings. You yeah. got to remember that. People it, it, go back and listen twice. Yeah, it, it does. The people lean into stuff, but but I want to make sure it's it it has to follow in a certain way for people to be able to follow. So, John, I'm going to get back to you. We're going to do that. Uh Gator, uh you are a speaker. Um see what you want to say here. Go ahead. Our Gator Nation, I guess it is. Uh, huh, huh, huh. You're concerned about Bulldog fans and you're a Gator. I'm not quite sure which school Hello? you're from. Hello? There you are. Hey. Oh, there. Hey. Who do we have? Dr. Drew. This is uh, Rob. Gator? Big uh, Hawk vs. Wolf fan. So uh, I just wanted to – I can't believe I got through to you. Um, you really – like hit me hard when you were on their podcast talking about uh, your struggles. I don't want to say with depression, but you were kind of feeling melancholy blue, uh, you know, after having COVID I've had it three times. I've never been vaxxed. So I don't know, maybe I have super antibodies or whatever. Um, but when you started talking and saying, I, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know. I don't feel right, whatever. It just hit me hard. And uh, as a former, you know, skate, I loosely know Jason and Tony, but as a former skater and college athlete, um, had several concussions. Um, those many, I can't remember. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? Like with COVID and cause it seemed like, you were talking to me. It seemed like COVID kind of had some type of a, 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 well, a, an impact on that. If if I remember, I'm going to put you in the in the uh, back in the audience and talk to you with Kelly. If I remember what I was talking about, I'm I'm a little bit prone to depression. I definitely have an anxiety disorder, but I noticed COVID behaved like a, a head injury to me. It felt like I'd been hit in the head. Uh, and in terms of my fogginess and my memory difficulties and, and then some lingering mood things that came after that as well as decreased stamina and decreased energy and things. And, and that's a post-concussive syndrome. And I, um, I, it's when I concluded that, and I started seeing evidence at the time, it's not three years ago or two years ago, the, the three and a, two and a half years ago, um, that there was evidence of uh, COVID being in neurological, you know, sort of symptoms being caused by microvascular injury. And Kelly, you and I have talked for quite some time about the endotheliitis we think is going on from the spike protein. And of course, that is a global process in the brain. And now we know something about what's has gone on there. And yeah, it, 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 it you know, Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a real thing. Post-concussive syndrome is a real thing. Head injury, global injuries of all type has have protein manifestations and they can wax and wane for years and they can progress. And it is something really very important for you to have evaluated. Uh, Kelly, I, I imagine you feel the same. Oh, I do. And there's no question that COVID is not... Uh you know, anomalous in this. There are, there are many viruses that can do this. Mm -hmm. Many bad viruses, mm -hmm. chronic illnesses. Um, it can- well, Just severe illness, period. Not only, yeah, just severe illness. Just severe illness oh. uh, can cause that brain fog. And the way you interpret it, the question is, in psychology, there's a, the, the lock theory, which is that certain physiologic symptoms really are subject to the way that you interpret them. For example, if your heart rate goes up, mm. if all of a sudden you're, I'm sitting here and my heart rate goes from my resting heart rate of 
of 60, say, to all of a sudden 120, I will interpret that based on my surroundings. I could interpret that as excitement. I could interpret it as fear. I could interpret it as sexual arousal. I could. It's going to depend on what what is in my surrounding. When you feel certain things, brain fog, for example, after having had a an illness where you've been indoors, you haven't felt well, you didn't go to work, you missed a lot of social activities, whatever, you are more likely to interpret that as depression. Interpret that as I'm unhappy versus the way you might interpret it otherwise as I'm just tired. For example, if, if you had that exact same feeling after studying for an exam, you might interpret that physiologic symptom differently. And so I think what's happens is a lot of people do experience after a bad illness, they experience their interpretation of this brain fog is depression, is that I'm unhappy, I don't feel right in my life, rather than just if you give people the okay and say, it's totally normal to feel that way. Many people have prolonged fatigue, a difficulty concentrating or whatever it is after a viral illness, then at least if nothing else, it lifts from them that heavy blanket of that I, I'm depressed. And it allows them to see that symptom through a different light, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And I remind everybody that Kelly was a psychologist before she became a, a physician. And um, I was just reminded, I was just thinking of uh, the old Chicago Bears quarterback. I'm blanking on his name. Uh, it's not coming to me. Uh, but he has had some chronic traumatic uh, symptomatology, and he's been getting a lot of extremely good treatment with marked benefit. And so the point being is, there's a lot to be done here, a lot to be done. And you shouldn't just, uh, whether it's exercising more or putting yourself in environments where you're less likely to interpret your experience, your symptomatology as in fact depression, or if indeed it is something related to the head injuries you were describing and it needs some sort of down the road uh, evaluation and treatment, it, it all is highly, highly manageable. And just to sort of sit with it is not a great a great idea, it seems to me. Right. Somebody mentioned the spike protein. Can that help do that to you? Well, it causes the, it's what we were talking about is causing the endotheliitis and the global brain injury in terms of the spike protein causing depression per se. You know, I have seen data that shows there's a little bit of um, injury to the um, striatum, that the striatum yeah, yeah, seems there's to be no, particularly there's no, yeah, sort there's of vulnerable. No yeah. There's no question, Drew. We are seeing evidence of, uh, particularly yeah. following vaccination. So if it happens post-vaccination, mm -hmm. you you would assume that it can happen to some extent, you know, post-infection. But deposition of spike proteins in certain areas of the brain, also deposition of lipid yeah. nanoparticles that are found in the vaccines in certain mm -hmm. parts of the brain, have been highly linked not only to depression but to florids. Um, uh, psychotic breaks. You know, the number of people, of parents yep. who have reported right. that their adolescent children have suffered a psychotic break following vaccination. And uh, these things we are linking primarily, if you talk to people like Ryan Cole, uh, who's had the advantage of doing, you know, biopsies, brain biopsies, and seeing tissue biopsies of uh, from the brain following uh, COVID and following vaccination, yep. they are seeing deposition of spike proteins within certain areas of the brain that could easily account for increases yep. in depression. 
both both in the myelin and in the neurons is very very uh, very yeah, protein exactly. and and by the way it was McMahon thank you people on uh, on uh, Rumble Rants I, I imagine the restream got the same thing um, McMahon was the yes you guys are there too McMahon was the name of the quarterback I was drinking of and the striatum is a very strange part of the brain it's right in the critical communication area, but it's this very small region that we don't really know what it does. It's intrigued me for quite some time. It shows up in almost every psychiatric and psychological and interpersonal neurobiology, uh, physiology I read about. There is the striatum right in the middle of things. Of course, it has protean manifestations. Kelly, I'm going to uh, wrap this up. Thank you for spending extra time yep. uh, answering some questions sure. for our callers. And as always, we appreciate you and your being here. And next week, and the week after, uh, we have Joseph Latipo, the Surgeon General from the state of Florida, who we both admire greatly. Yep. And we'll see how his thinking has evolved and how he's been able to fend off the um, the critics, which keep swirling around him. Yes. Up on the board here also, <laughs> we have Tom Renz coming in the 28th. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya right. in here tomorrow, June 12th. Lionel and Mark Changizi, is that how you pronounce his name? And uh, we will see you all tomorrow for Jay Bhattacharya at 3 o'clock Pacific time. See you then. Sounds great. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Oh.